Ladies and gentlemen, the questions you've all been asking are now being answered. Welcome to another edition of It's All About Who You Know, the podcast where influential people talk big topics in sports, faith, and more. Your host is a former Oregon State wrestler. He has a 4.9 star Uber rating and is currently undefeated in his MMA career. Here is Christian Robertson. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of It's All About Who You Know. Real quick before we get into the podcast, just want to give you a quick introduction as to who our guest today is. Um, our guest is Eli Worth Jones. Eli is a firefighter in the Las Vegas Valley. Um, been on the department with some years now. He's a paramedic, and he recently went to Ukraine to uh, to help out with the uh, the war efforts. So did a lot of paramedic work. Really cool story that he's talking about so definitely stay till the end um at the end it cuts out a little bit but you kind of get the gist of it he uh really great guy super um super good conversation that we had to have or that we got to have rather and uh just really enjoyed it really enjoyed the time speaking with eli and um i hope you guys enjoy as well if you have not yet make sure you go leave a five-star review on apple podcast let us know what you think of the podcast and um help push this out so we can get more people listening. Also go check out my two YouTube channels. I have a YouTube channel just for this podcast, Chris, or it's all about who you know, and my main channel where I post most of my vlogs and like fun fight stuff and all that is uh, just Christian Robertson. So go check those two out and uh, leave a five-star review. I appreciate you guys. Enjoy. There we go. What's up, buddy? Hey, how's it going, man? Good, brother. How are you? I guess good, I already asked good. that twice. Sorry about that. No worries. Oh, you're good. I didn't hear the first time, so you're good. Okay. <laughs> That's always weird. You're like, hey, how's it going? Good. How are you? Good. What about you? Good. Yeah. <laughs> good. Good. Yep. Uh, hey, good. What are you up to today? Uh, not much. Uh, I flew back into town with a buddy this morning, crashed out, and then uh, doing this, changed the oil in the truck, and then uh, getting to go hang out with a friend. Do a little rock climbing this evening, so okay, pretty, pretty chill day. So, is that uh, yeah. is that your is that one of the big your big hobbies is rock climbing? Yeah, yeah, I've rock climbed for shit coming up on ten years now. Um, really? So yeah, I guided a little. Bit. I was in college uh, in the summers and a little bit during the school year, and then uh, yeah, still just do it recreationally. Uh, my buddy who I just flew back in town with, he normally works up in Yosemite National Park, so. I go up there a couple times a year and rock climb with them up there. And then uh, I've got a couple friends in town I rock climb with. So just good therapy, get outside and have some fun. So, Do you feel that rock climbing serves the job at all? Um, I think in like a personal way, yeah. That like I, I enjoy getting outside and it's good. Um, I'd say 50% of my climbing friends are non-work related, so kind of nice to get away from that sometimes uh outside of that not really um okay this year i might want to our tactical rescue team on the on the fire department um which i've done in the past for other agencies and i do for metro search and rescue um so like there's some correlation there of like if you're rescuing a rock climber i understand their systems and their equipment and what they're doing but outside of that um not too much not so much here like in Vegas, do you think there's other places that it would probably serve more? Uh, I think if you're like working in the rope rescue community or yeah. the search and rescue or mountain rescue group, 
then like, yeah, absolutely. It's the same thing. Um, Progressively, I think um, mountain rescue teams are becoming lighter and lighter equipment base and kind of, um, I don't know, their systems and their equipment is kind of following behind rock climbing a little bit. Rock climbing, it still is like lighter weight, a little bit more sketchy, less safety standards, or at least, you know, less backup systems to everything. Sure. Um, versus like rescue is always like there's a system, there's a backup system and this and that separate anchor systems and, and things of that nature. But it's progressively getting lighter, which I think is kind of mirroring rock climbing. So a little bit of connection there. Gotcha. I got to say, this is the first podcast I've ever done where I didn't know what my guests looked like going into the podcast <laughs> because, right because I, I, I didn't look you up on social media or anything. I was talking to Mike and he was like, um, Hey, you should have this guy on because, you know, with all, obviously all the stuff when we'll talk about that you've done in Ukraine and just your job and everything. Um, I was like, okay, cool. Sounds good. If, if you say he's a cool guest to have, I'd, I'd love to t- love to chat and, uh but yeah when i so when i saw the mustache i was like oh yeah that guy's a firefighter you could you could tell from a, a mile away <laughs> yeah yeah uh it's actually when i was out in uh las vegas um or not in las vegas when i was out in ukraine last month um actually the last day i was running ops out there sat down and had a coffee uh with uh this guy and uh, his team ended up being peter reed who ended up passing away six days after that Oh, uh, from the Russian attack. Um, but, uh, we were like talking or whatever and chatting and we were the two Americans at the table. Um, and there's just a, I like most things are universal. I think a lot of things that we see as, as like, Oh, this is American standard. is like more of just like a global human being thing. Right. Um, but Americans definitely have a slightly different sense of humor, especially like military and first responder Americans. Um, so we're like kicking it a little bit at the table and laughing and whatnot. And he was like, Oh, what do you do? And I'm like, oh, you know, medic. And he's like, and a fireman, yeah. And I was like, yeah, yeah, and a fireman. He was like, yeah, like other side of the world, dirty stash gives it away every time. So really, yeah. do um, they? <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Do they have any customs like, um, uh, like that, like grooming customs or like little things that they do? Because you know, like a firefighter, or a cop walks in the room, a military guy walks in the room. Like they all have their different little quirks. Like I'm a, a MMA fighter, a wrestler. Like you can kind of tell. Like yeah, you know, a bronc rider, a bull rider. You're gonna tell because they got that stature. Is there anything like that over there? Or, um, I don't think as much. You definitely like get some that you're like, okay, like there's a, you know, the position of authority, maybe the um, just the body language and whatnot, um. Not as much, which is kind of interesting. Um, just like looking at people from different organizations. Like, uh, I think it's, uh, I met a Swedish fireman a couple years ago and he was like, like full beard dreadlocks. And I was like, and he's like, Oh yeah, I'm a fireman too. And I was like, sure you are, bud. Um, and he's like, no, like in Norway, we don't have the grooming standards. He's like, your fireman and cop are a lot like, um, like German firemen and cops where it's very more paramilitary right uh tighter thing and, and grooming standards but not all countries have that because he's like and i was like well what about your mask and he was like well it's a positive air system anyway so it, even if you get uh a break in your seal it's just going to push air out I'm like yeah that makes absolutely like it makes sense but yeah not like not everywhere requires their firemen to be clean shaven even when they're wearing a scba mask. mask so yeah uh, I've heard- but yeah out there 
wasn't particularly it's also like really interesting because like with the war and everything else like camouflage and like military designs have just become like popular culture to some degree and it's also just become like the replacement of all the winter clothes that were destroyed by the russians where you had to leave in your house when the russians invaded you know the cheapest and most abundant replacement is like the military uniforms coming in um either either privately or through you know our you know the many nato organizations and countries that are are donating um so that's kind of more of a, a common thing to see then Gotcha. Do you see the grooming standards for the U.S. going away a little bit? Because I know for police out here in Vegas, they just got rid of it. Um, I don't know why they did that, but I know they got rid of it. Yeah, yeah. The whole like assimilate went to community and kind of trying to fit in. I know a lot of departments are going towards like, you know, facial hair within like an inch or whatever, or half yeah. inch and uh, allowing visible tattoos and stuff like that. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Um, I think that, um, like the fireman thing for facial hair for us is because of like, uh, personal protective equipment and like your mask has to fit and, um, and whatnot. Um, and, uh, the NFPA doesn't usually change its mind very quickly on anything, um, which can be at times frustrating. So I doubt that that'll really ever change, um, as far as that goes. Um, but other ways, I think it's a little more lenient, especially for like law enforcement. I think, um, it's not unreasonable either. Like, um, you know, a little bit of facial hair and right. Some tattoo showing, especially the tattoo thing. Like the, that's kind of the nice thing on our fire department is we don't really have a tattoo standard as long as it's not like obscene. So like guys have sleeves and stuff like that and they don't have to cover them up versus like all the cops in the valley have to cover up all their tattoos. So sure. Gotcha. Now tell me, just tell me a little bit about how you got into firefighting. And um, before we get into some of the Ukraine stuff, I just want to hear, you texted me a little bit of information about it. Uh, where are you from originally? Uh, I grew up uh, on a small town, the Virginia, West Virginia border, kind of between, but uh, the closest town was like Abingdon, Virginia, that was kind of okay. like a significant dot. On top. Um, yeah. So. Okay. And then now how long have you been with Las Vegas Fire? Um, four and a half. Yeah. Four and a half coming up on five. Gotcha. July you, makes five. Okay. Did you yeah. go to school? Did you go to college or anything like that? Yeah, I actually did uh three and a half years of a bachelor's degree. I am four credit hours, very specific credit hours away from graduating with a bachelor's. I'm three credit hours away from graduating with an associate's. I have like 175 college credit hours, some ridiculous number. Um, you need like 120 to get a bachelor's, but, uh, all of the schools are like, well, we want you to take this one class that's special to us. And we want you to take this one class special to us. And so I just haven't gotten around to, you know, making everybody happy and getting the, the paper. So, yeah. Now, so um, with, um, you know, with fire, because, you know, you said you're almost five years in and at seven years, if you have a degree, you can, you can test for captain. Is that, uh, uh Seven, uh, it's not, we don't have to have a degree on our department. Some departments oh, really? maybe, but yeah, for, for my department, we don't have to have uh, any sort of degree at this time. It's, oh, okay. Yeah. I think so Clark, I think seven, Clark County. And I think six, say, six say years again. if you're a medic. I think okay. it's seven years you can captain and six years if you're a medic, I think is our rule. Okay. Uh, I, I don't know about it. Yeah. 
Okay, yeah, then uh, then it's Clark County. Clark, I thought that was statewide, but Clark County is nine years, no degree, and seven years with a degree. So at least that's what I was told this summer. Because I was doing okay. um, some stuff with Clark County over the summer, but um, and then we okay. did some information. So what, um, so you got, now did you test while you were still living in Virginia to be a fireman out here? Yeah, yeah. I bumped into a guy uh, in West Virginia working, the summer before my senior year of college and uh okay. i was miserable with the college experience uh i was working two jobs and volunteering and uh doing all this other stuff and just didn't feel like i was getting anything out of academia that was gonna benefit me long run and uh he <laughs> I bumped into him he told me my life plan was stupid was his first uh <laughs> sentence out of his mouth to me i never met the guy before and uh yeah then like a week later he comes up to me and is like hey you know i, I we're having open application for Las Vegas Fire Rescue, if you want to put your application in, I'll put a good word in for you. So, uh, yeah, I did. I flew back and forth the fall semester of my senior year of college. Um, I do Frontier Red Eye flights from Raleigh, North Carolina, uh, mm. back and forth to Vegas. And I stayed at the hostel over on Fremont and 14th Street, um, which is, uh, if you know about Vegas, it's not the best part of town. I, I definitely um, know where you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, I think I paid like 14 it was like fourteen fifty a night for a bed there, um, and uh, yeah, so I took tested, and then uh, right at the tail end of that fall semester of senior year, um, I got a conditional offer, and uh, ended up dropping out of college and moved out here. Uh, tail end of December of two thousand seventeen. Well, now, what is what do you mean by so, conditional offer? Um. It's been a minute since I've gone through all this stuff, but basically saying that you're not, um, they can fire you at will. You still have to like pass a physical at the time that you oh, get okay. the job offer and you sign your paperwork. So it's just like not a loan offer. I don't understand how all the language works. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. I thought you were talking about something else, but that's like kind of like being in when you're in rookie school or where you're going through the, um, yeah, yeah. the, yeah, you, yeah, you get it. Yeah. Um, now were you yeah. so you were a paramedic at this time or you were EMT or how how was that? What were you doing at the time? Uh I was finishing up the testing for my advanced EMT. I had taken night classes when I was in college to get my okay. EMT basic. Okay. Advanced EMT, uh separate from my degree. And then uh so I finished up testing for that so that I could come in as an advanced EMT. Um and uh yeah, but I was not a paramedic. I went to a paramedic school, it's been two years ago now through the department. Okay. My department, I promotional test, tested well, and was sent to paramedic school for my department. Gotcha. Now, did you work as an EMT or at advanced at any point in time before getting on the department, or did you do all your training and all your stuff on the job once you got with Las Vegas? No, I had. Um, so I started on a search and rescue team when I was 16. Uh, I did that when I was 18 is when I went to EMT school. And at the same time, I joined the local fire department. So I was a volunteer fireman for a mixed professional department in my hometown. Okay. Um, so I started working there uh, as an EMT. And, and even then, um, while I was working on my advanced EMT, I was working uh, under guys as an advanced EMT. So still doing IVs and stuff like that. Um, gotcha. And uh, yeah, so then I uh, was doing that. And then I worked part-time um, in the summertime in West Virginia. I'd work for the Boy Scouts full-time. And then on my nights and weekends i'd work for the fire department part-time uh as a firefighter emt for them as well um so i had experience there we did 
the EMS coverage for the summer camp. Um, and then we also had a station in town that the last summer I lived in the station in town and ran calls out of, um, there. So gotcha. I had prior experience coming out here. Yeah. And then long story, but I ended up getting, uh, non-confirmed for my first Academy out here. So then I went to work for about five months, four or five months for AMR and, uh, the speedway doing their EMS team out of the speedway, uh, okay. before I got rehired. So weirdly as it all works out i also had like experience with private ambulance in las vegas which ended up being a huge ben- benefit for once i got on the job so gotcha yeah i'm sure it, it, you know southern it, now you're you were in uh you were on the border of virginia and west virginia so i'm sure it's probably a little bit different pace out here than it is out there probably a lot slower out there and then here it's i mean we're like what top three call centers in the entire u.s yeah, that's what I was told when I got on, and I was talking to someone else the other day, and they were saying that they did the math. Someone did the math or a study on it. Like Las Vegas paramedics, a year working here is the equivalent of like seven years working in an average EMS system in the United States. But yeah, I, I was told when I got on with AMR that it was the third busiest EMS system. So it's very different. Um, I learned a lot from the guys that that I got started with. Um, kind of to the point that paramedic school wasn't like that crazy hard or too eye-opening like a lot of the stuff was just like oh cool i remember learning about this from the guys that the medics i worked with back in virginia and west virginia so that was great but uh now talking to them and like listening to their like oh yeah i just had this call or yeah i had a cardiac arrest you know last month and something like that and you're like man that's a that's a 48 hour shift for me most days it's like um we uh there's a there's a lot larger transient population out here that we deal with that maybe isn't you know, acutely sick, um, all the time, but then like, there's a lot, a lot of facilities and just a lot of people out here, a lot of retirement communities that, um, keep us busy, but yeah, you get a lot of experience really fast as a medic out here. Gotcha. Now. Okay. So you, you went to Ukraine recently. When did you get back? Uh, so my first trip was mid August to the end of September. I did six weeks back then. And then I just did four weeks again this past January. I think I landed back in Vegas on the 31st. Okay. of january so and now how yeah. did you get now how did you get in and like into this and what were you doing while you were over there yeah um getting into it like i don't know people are always like oh yeah like how'd you get involved with that and then i started thinking about it i'm like i don't know <laughs> um it was something followed from the very beginning but like just a weird story of i don't know is last year and it seems like a lifetime ago now um but uh yeah, looked into it, and then like obviously they uh, asked for uh, international, you know, volunteers, and they have the Foreign Legion is a, a military battalion, a couple of battalions of just foreign fighters that fight for Ukraine um, that are paid and treated the same as Ukrainian soldiers. All the pay scales all the same, mm-hmm. um, and so uh, and they signed contracts with the Ukrainian military. So those guys obviously were going over there. I just followed it from the in- beginning, and uh, I didn't know that much about Ukraine wasn't really like a uh like a anti-russian person but it was pretty cool to see someone just have the the guts to stand up to you know to someone like that and uh just the organization and the the willpower of the people to out there to stand up for themselves um and then just definitely pretty impressive and i I think you know i've been reading a book uh about the first 150 days of combat out there and a lot of guys are like yeah well it wasn't super like i didn't vote for president Zelensky, but now he's our president and uh, pretty cool. So just to see how he stepped up as a wartime president was pretty inspiring. So just kept track of the 
it as much as you can as a as a foreigner, especially in America. I feel like we're very limited on what's actually going on out there. Yeah. Um, and uh, just kept following it, kept following it. I knew I had a bunch of time off in August and September. Um, and I originally wanted to go work for Yosemite Search and Rescue part time as a paramedic for them uh, and go work with my buddy up there. And uh, they were like, oh, well, we actually don't need an extra paramedic uh, this year. So we've got it covered. So I was like, all right, well, girlfriend and I were then going to go out of town for like a month. But then she changed jobs and couldn't get the time off work like she had originally talked as well. And so I was like, well, like, this is what I want to do. I wasn't planning on doing anything what I ended up up having done now. Um, But I originally was like, well, you know, basically the the big thing with the war is that it has limited supply of like traditional healthcare services to civilians. So not only are you dealing with like massive trauma incidents and uh, just a massive amount of trauma on the, on the battlefield on both sides, you're also now dealing with civilians being involved in that and, and, you know, casualties sometimes, you know, uh, I would argue pretty heavily targeted uh, by the Russians, uh, but then also sometimes just, you know, just downright accidents. Um, But you also have these people along the front lines that, you know, they they don't have an ambulance service anymore, like Bakhmut, Ukraine, where you're like one of the last ambulances going in there uh, for civilians. Just there's just not access to any sort of outside healthcare or medication prescriptions, anything like that. So um, the original idea was that uh, I was going to go into some of the deoccupied areas that were low risk and uh, I wanted to uh, get in there and just work in like a small clinic setting, uh, you know, work with like a doctor or physician's assistant, just doing medical checkups. Right. Right. Uh, basically just grandma and grandpa's make sure they get the prescriptions and take care of that stuff. So nothing exciting or intense was the goal. That's what I convinced my girlfriend to be okay with me going and doing. Uh, and so I ended up finding this organization off of Reddit, a uh, young woman, uh, who was a combat medic veteran and uh, just a just a cool person all around, was recruiting for her, her organization. So interviewed with her, sent her my resume, sent her my certifications and whatnot. She's like, this is awesome. You know, we really struggle. You know, we have people that are like, yeah, I want to come help, but they don't actually have any current up-to-date certifications. So it's huge that you have that. Um, you know, this is what we're looking at. She's like, the highest risk that we're dealing with is like maybe some un- unexploded ordinances, so like the last town we were working in, we were told it was clear, but we ended up finding like a uh, unexploded artillery round in a house and they found like one landmine that EOD had missed when they swept through. So she's uh, like, that's the, the biggest risk we're dealing with. Uh, and like, if you want, uh, we think we're going to start recommending to volunteers to bring like ballistic plates and a helmet just in case, just so you have it. And you're not trying to like acquire it once you're in country. So I'm like, okay, cool. Like sounds pretty low risk. Sounds pretty chill. I'll work on getting some plates and a helmet. Um, so uh, ended up getting those from a buddy, bought a plate carrier. He provided me with some plates and a helmet that he had uh, acquired through his years of service. And um, so I had that one week before I left, I ended up texting her and was like, Hey, like, you know, I'm flying into here. I'm doing all the things that you told me to do to get to the border. And like, who am I meeting when I'm get there? Like, who do I need to reach out to? Cause she was already back in the States at that point. Um, and uh, she was like, Oh, I don't feel comfortable recruiting for that organization anymore. Um, but I'll put you in contact with the guy that took my job. And I'm like, what? Like I have a $1,500 plane ticket, like that I'm hopping on a plane. Like next week I've got, you know, train tickets already pre-purchased to get to the border and everything else. And I'm like, yeah, she tells me this. So then she's like, Oh, I reached out to the guy that took my job and, uh, he left the organization as well. Oh no. doesn't feel comfortable working with and I'm like, oh, brother. Yeah. So I'm like, okay, like 
you know, talk to, uh, my girlfriend was really the only person I talked to that knew I was going last time. Um, I didn't tell my family what I was doing and, and, uh, yeah, I was like, oh, okay, cool. And then last second, I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. Um, Jeez. so she was like, well, I'll give you the contact information of the guy that took her job that then left her job as well. You know, he's going down to Southern Ukraine to work with the team. Um, and maybe they'd have room for a medic. And so, uh, I ended up reaching out to him. She told him I was going to reach out and, uh, he's like, oh yeah. He's like, you know, it's pretty dangerous, but it's really rewarding work. Um, and I don't remember what he said that they were doing, but then he sent me this video and he's like, Hey, just like a heads up, you know, I feel like we should be honest with like the risks that you're taking and whatnot. But like, you know, this was our night last night and literally the night before I texted them, they got in like a direct targeted hit on them, um, uh, from the Russians. And, uh, they were staying in like a four story building that used to be like a, um, kind of retirement home kind of deal, but bigger, bigger building, dorm style building. Um, and, uh, two of the guys ended up getting injured either from small shrapnel or glass getting blown out from the windows. But, you know, one guy got a pretty good laceration and a deep, uh, embedded piece into his, into his foot. The other wow. guy got one in the hand that had been material bleed. They threw a tourniquet mm-hmm. on him, uh, at like three o'clock in the morning. Um, and uh, it had been 100% a targeted attack, uh, ripped up a couple of their vehicles pretty good. So he's sending me this video of like the rounds incoming, and he's like, yeah, it's like what we're doing. Like, I'm just like, well, I don't have any options left. Like, I spent two months prepping for finding an organization that I was excited to do work with, you know, prepping all of my kit. I took a couple extra classes and, and everything else, and like, I don't, I don't have the time to go get vetted by another organization at this point, so yeah. let's do it. Um. So, um, that turned into a whole nother thing, but at least got me out there, got me over the border, um, got me in a couple of tighter, tighter spots in Mikolive that was, uh, with Mikolive at the time in August last year was pretty spicy. The Russians were kind of all sitting outside, uh, on the, the Southern and Eastern, uh, edge of the city. So it was artillery range all day if they wanted to. And, uh, it was just weird, uh, the, the rounds would hit before the air raid sirens went off and whatnot. So there's times you'd be sitting there. And a nice little cute diner or whatever that just like is wonderful little European diner eating a cheeseburger and some French fries and having a beer in the afternoon. And you'd like hear incoming artillery rounds going off in the distance. And, and then like, and then you hear the air raid sirens start spooling up and going off. So, uh, ended up getting me there. I ended up, uh, making some connections, but we never really got any work in. I ended up jumping teams again once I was out there to go work with the Norwegian. Um, and at that point, then we were doing a mixture of, civilian uh like medical evacuations as well as some military transport so um we had contact with the local dispatcher for the military and basically would go help shuttle wounded soldiers away from the front line so they get to a immediate hospital basic life support sometimes like chest tubes stuff like that stop the bleed maybe some minimalist surgery and then we'd pick them up and start moving them further further west from there um so we're doing that and then uh evacuations for mostly old people that just had you know conditions that either need to be monitored they're severely dehydrated or um they couldn't walk they need to be able to be carried down out of you know sometimes six seven story apartment buildings getting carried down and and just needed a place to lay down so you know an ambulance is the way to do that so we were doing that which was always interesting um we went into a couple places back in august and september like uh bakhmut at the time which was a completely different place than it is now but we were there um then uh like nikopol new york places that are all still pretty well along the front lines within yeah within artillery the russians kind of deal 
So um, that's what I was doing back then. And basically that's what I ended up picking up on doing that. The Norwegian I was working with at the time, it'll be in two Norwegian medics. I met an American, went them, those businessmen that had some family ties to Ukraine and we all ended up kind of coming together and forming what is now frontlinemedics.org, which is the organization that I went with this last time. And I now I'm doing North American recruiting for them for uh, volunteers. So, wow. Um, now, so yeah, it's uh, it's like, everyone's like, Oh, how'd you get there? And it's like, I wish this was like an easy story, but it's, it really was just a, a jump in here and there and, and making it work at the time. Um, and I, you know, really happy with it overall. There's times that at the time it was very frustrating. Um, I'm a get up in the morning and like work, 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 work. And then like, just want to do something at all times. And that's just not always the case, especially in war. Like a lot of it's downtime. Yeah. Um, and that's very frustrating for a lot of us that are very motivated. So, uh, but yeah, overall it's been an awesome experience. What, um, did you find out what happened with the original organization? Um, yeah. So they're actually still running some stuff. I still follow them on social media and they recently posted a couple of things. Um, Basically, there was this just big kind of falling out in between uh, the guy I ended up meeting up with, uh, the American that my original contact gave me his number, um, and um, the heads of the organization. They ran out of money, and things got really crummy, um, and then the they when they got hit, they ended up not bringing the ambulance they were using out with them at the time. Um, they ended up leaving it in Meek alive because they got hit. Um, and so, uh, then the organization was claiming that they stole it, blah, blah. And they're like, well, we sent you a pin drop on its locations and you have the keys to it. So I don't know how this is stealing. Um, so it's just like a whole lot of just kind of wartime drama that just gets people messed up and gotcha. a difference of difference of, uh, um, opinions and and whatnot so they're still doing some work out there um and it seems like they've gotten reorganized and kind of doing stuff that's more appropriate for their um their levels they, i don't think they're doing anything medical based it's all just um aid delivery to civilians and whatnot which is very necessary and good work just not what i was intended to go with them so I know yeah before. now yeah. when when that guy sent you that video did you think like were you like i should just turn around like I can't, I don't, I didn't really sign up for that. I mean, I'm sure it went through your mind, but what, like, what were the, yeah. like, what were the odds that you were not going at that point? Um, it was interesting. And like, uh, I feel like at the moment that he sent it to me and I watched it one, I didn't like go through it and like really pay attention. I just was like, okay, yeah, they got hit. You know, um, I didn't go through and break down videos like I would now if someone sent me that, um, and at the time, I was like, well, this sucks. This is a lot more than I signed up for, but I'm down for it. I've trained for it. Um, so, you know, let's let's do it. Um, I don't have a really – didn't feel like I had a different option. But that being said, like the days leading up to leaving, uh, being on the plane leaving, the train, I ended up spending a night on just the Polish side of the border because I missed my connecting train into Ukraine uh, yeah. at the time. And um, – there was a lot of like downtime to like think about things. And then like that, I was like shitting my brains out. Couldn't sleep. Like just the, the not knowing what I was getting into and like everything you see coming out of there is worst case scenario uh, for the most part. And like the war in the front lines in Bakhmut right now are like absolute hell holes that like you can't imagine exists for human beings. But um, the large majority of the country is pretty peaceful and pretty nice. And people are wonderful. And uh, it's, a, it's a good place to be. Um, 
So there was like rear absolute fear, panic attacks. Like they're just barely contained going there and just like, being like, no, like, but cause yeah, I was like, I could have gone and spent six weeks bouncing around Europe. Like I had enough money saved up. I could have gone in the hop hostels through, you know, all of Eastern Europe and had a great, you know, normal vacation. Um, so there was definitely like that temptation, especially as I sat there on the border and like, you know, do I do this or do I not? Um, and like, I told my parents I was going to stay on the Polish side of the border and was just helping out with refugees that were crossing the border. I wasn't going into the country and, you know, my girlfriend knew what I was doing. Um, and one friend, two friends knew that I was doing it. My buddy that that hooked me up with plates and whatnot, he was aware of what I was doing, my girlfriend, and then another friend of mine. Um, and that was it. So there was definitely like real fear at that point. Uh, and then like the day before or the day of that we headed from where we were at and like Western Ukraine down to Odessa and then Mykolaiv, um, there was like real, like, Holy crap, what am I getting myself into kind of deal? But, um, in some ways it's not as bad as you think in other ways it's worse, but like, um, it's not like you cross the border and you die immediately, which is, I kind of feel like everyone gets that idea from the media. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's a weird, it's a weird place. Gotcha. Now, it's a great place, but it's weird. Yeah. How close were you to the, uh, to the front lines? Um, last time we got within like 500 meters, about 500 yards of like what is considered the gray zone. So like no one has real control over it in, uh, Eastern Bakhmut. Um, I don't know if, uh, you saw there's a CNN story that was, they uh, did on us while I was out there. Uh, they actually did a pretty good job with it. That was on a Monday. Uh, we delivered supplies and, and kind of took care of a patient out there, did an evaluation on a guy that had some dysentery going on, brought him in food and water and some, uh, diesel generators. Um, and that was on Monday on Tuesday, uh, myself, my partner and two other guys I worked with, we tried to go back there. And, uh, so we parked our ambulances, tucked them in behind a building so that, you know, uh, a drone would have to be actually over top of them. They weren't line of sight, the Russians to kind of to stashed them. Uh, and then went in on foot to scope things out, make sure things were still good. Talk to Ukrainian soldiers as we went and see how things were going. And we're like running along like 10 yards between each person, just in case rounds come in and, and uh, we like run up on this group of Ukrainian soldiers and this one guy like gives us a weird look and is like looking at us. And then he like kind of shuffles over and he was obviously like the platoon leader and was like, oh yeah, blah, blah, like speaking in Ukrainian to our translator. And then I just hear like sniper. I was like, oh, I know that word. Um, <laughs> so we ended up not being able to get back to uh, the same guys that we went to on Monday. We couldn't get to anymore because there was a Russian sniper that was able to operate in the area shooting between the buildings uh, onto our side. So kind of extending that reach of the, of the gray zone. So that was pretty spicy, but, um, this was definitely the time that we got closer and we were within definitely within a kilometer, like definitely mortar artillery. And it, uh, that day, you know, if I'd walk around the other side of that building artillery or sniper fire. So yeah. um, that was interesting. They, uh, they loved us. They thought it was awesome that foreigners were there. They couldn't believe it that we were just like running around trying to help out people in, in Bakhmut and, um, we had a picture that they gave me and my partner a, a grenade, like a legitimate fragmentation grenade. <laughs> it's like, I, I have no idea what to do with this, but thanks, dude. Um, so it's kind of funny. I, I got a couple of pictures with them. They were some pretty awesome guys. Uh, that was cool. a cool day, too, because that Tuesday we had gone by a school in Dnipro, uh, which is the city we were kind of based out of. I had a friend that's a school teacher there, and she had us come in, and they did this big celebration for Ukrainian Unity Day 
which was I think 1919 Western and Eastern Ukraine got united into one country okay. underneath Soviet rule. But, um, right. so they have a celebration. They have a lot of federal holidays. Um, but they did a celebration and then they gave us this gift bag. that was all different types of like little trinkets, little Ukrainian gifts that, uh, the students and the teachers had made and asked us to give it out to the, the soldiers and the, the police officers on the front lines um, and the volunteers on the front lines. They could be reminded of what, you know, what they're fighting for and what they're there for and the kids in and Dnipro supporting them. So we got to give that out to those guys. And uh, you know, I don't speak enough Ukrainian to, to be able to communicate that one. Though, but so I typed it up on Google translate and then like hold it out to, for them to read on the phone. And they're like, Oh, like, you know, in Ukrainian, a gift from, you know, Ukrainian children in Dnipro school, you know, such and such as a thank you for, for your sacrifice and then hand them a gift. And they absolutely loved it. Just like huge smiles out of guys that had been in a pretty terrible place for a while fighting pretty hard. So um, that was cool. Um, um so no, I, I gotta yeah. get, yeah. Say, what were you saying? Sorry. No, nothing, whatever you're oh, going for. Um, I don't have, uh, the pro and I've got a, a appointment at three o'clock. So I got to get off here pretty soon. We got like four minutes left, I think. But um, what's the perception of the Russian <laughs> army right now? Because obviously when you talk to people here, it's kind of 50-50. There's, I wouldn't say 50-50 like people are okay with what Russia's doing, but 50-50 is, you know, we kind of, it's it's not really good versus evil. There's a lot of gray area. It's not like Ukraine is has a track record of being a, you know, amazing country with a, a awesome you know uncorrupt leader but also what russia right. is doing is you know we know who putin is and also what he's doing is very much uh wrong and evil what's the perception of the people that are there towards them um yeah i think it's a really difficult question and something i've kind of uh tried to uh work around uh being home this time because i was a little bit more public about my trip this last time obviously I, I was on national news that i was in bakhmut so right people know um and it's been interesting because i definitely run into some americans that are just like straight up pro-russian um and it's really weird um and then like you said kind of the neutral thing uh for ukrainians like um i think there's a big difference and i think that like as americans we would like other people to see the difference of in between like the american people and the american government like I'm not happy with everything my state, local and federal right. government does, but that doesn't change who I am, the morals and values I have as a people. So like these guys are like, you know, Ukraine's a country. I don't care. Russia can have it. I don't see why my tax dollars should go to that. And like some people getting pretty aggressive with that. It's like, that's fair. I'm not there to support the Ukrainian government. I'm there to support people. the democratic free people of Ukraine that are, I mean, they're just some of the most wholesome, patriotic, uh, and kind people I can even imagine like, sure. um, yeah. Uh, so, and then as far as Ukrainians view on Russia, there's obviously like you get the occasional pro Russian sentiment, but it's a very, very rare thing. The majority of people there are very vocally, uh, hate Russia with a passion. Um, they were like maybe more neutral before 2014 after 2014, which is when the war really started. Um, you know, they were pretty like, things weren't you know they weren't interested anymore uh, they didn't like the russians the russians had taken a lot from them um, and killed a lot of their people uh and then uh when this like uh basically everyone in ukraine can speak ukrainian and russian and uh the most common statement i think i heard in my entire trip was like yes i speak russian but i'm trying to forget it like they'll list the countries and like 
educated people in Ukraine speak like five languages. And they'll be like, oh, yeah, you know, like Polish, English, Ukrainian. And they're like, unfortunately, I know Russian, but I'm trying to forget mm-hmm. uh, is a very common thing. And like I've had translators in far eastern Ukraine, like even Ukrainians, very pro-Ukrainians, you know, soldiers from eastern Ukraine or yeah, eastern Ukraine will speak Russian. Like that's their primary language. Um, and uh, I've had translators that are like, I won't speak Russian to them. Like I absolutely right. refuse to speak Russian. So one half of the conversation will be Russian and, you know, our translator staff will be Ukrainian. So, um, yeah, whatever sentiment or like friendship that was possible beforehand is definitely gone. And uh, they're as pro-Ukraine, anti-Russia as possible. So gotcha. uh, and those are the people that I'm there for, like not right. there to support a corrupt government. I think our it's pretty much bought and paid for by large corporations and rich people anyway. So I really don't think we have a lot of a lot of room to talk about corruption in america it's just different no, we just call it lobbying yeah um so, hey uh, eli we got about we got about 30 seconds we're gonna get booted off because i don't have the pro but okay yeah well hey man i i really appreciate you doing this uh i enjoyed the conversation um i'd love to keep in touch i'll probably yeah. post it this weekend or early next week um but okay. yeah, man, thank you so much. It, it was it was really uh, just good to hear your story. And I think that is a good message that we're here for the people, not the government. Great talking, man. Sorry I was a little late getting on. Um, and uh, if you need anything else or have any more questions, please reach out. I'll send you the links to my social medias as well. If you need pictures or talk, just let me know. Uh, thanks for trying to share my story. And yeah, people, not government, definitely is what we're here for. So thanks.